you know, we tell the stories about the dumb things <laughs> we have done. And we're like, look, I'm still alive. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, your book club discussion times 10. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like you to join me as I take a deep dive into the world of literature. Welcome to episode three, where I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Tracy Batiste. Tracy Batiste, Masters of Education, is the author of the middle grade novel, The Jumbies, and its forthcoming sequel. She is also the author of the young adult novel, Angel's Grace as well as nonfiction books for children, such as The Totally Gross History of Ancient Egypt. Mrs. Batiste is on the faculty of Leslie University's Creative Writing MFA program and runs the editorial company Fairy God Author. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and note that because the conversation was so great, I decided to split it into two parts. Be sure to download and listen to part two when you're done with this first part. All right. Well, I am here with Tracy. Tracy, say hello. Hi. Hi, John. Hi, Tracy. <laughs> Tracy, thanks so much for coming on Read, Learn, Live. Thanks for having me. We're so excited. This is going to be such a wonderful conversation. Uh, I read Tracy's wonderful book, The Jumbies, which I'm holding in my left hand, which is so great. It has beautiful cover art as well, and it says they're coming on the front, yes. so we should all be scared. Yes, we should be we scared. Sh we should be scared. So... Um, uh, we're going to break this up into a couple parts. We're going to talk about your writing process, which I'm always curious about, sort of the book itself and what's going on in it, and the other book that you wanted to talk about in relation to it, and then some fun questions at the end. And uh, I think it'll be a good time. Sounds good. Cool. Uh, but first off, I thought it would be great for everyone to hear sort of uh, a quick summary of the book, maybe like an elevator pitch about what the book is all about to help people understand. Sure. So uh, The Jumbies is about an 11-year-old girl named Corinne Lemaire who goes into the forest one day and draws out this monstrous jumbie. And jumbies are creatures in Caribbean folklore, and they will eat you if they get half a chance to eat you. And the jumbie that she draws out decides that she wants to take over Corinne's entire island, starting with Corinne's family. So Corinne has to fight this jumbie, basically, to save her family and her entire island. Wow. That's called setting the stakes high. Yes. Everybody. <laughs> yes. I love it. And that's exactly where the stakes are at. Um, great. So, so now let's, uh, let's go a little bit back in time. And I want to go back in time to before the book was a book. Okay. Uh, and so I want to start off with really, you know, the, the genesis of the whole thing. Why, why did you decide that you were going to write a book of all the ways to share the story? Okay. Well, you know, in Trinidad and Tobago, where I grew up, uh, the jumbies are something that people talk about like in everyday life, like somebody walking down the street might be Elijah Bless, or you know, um, if you hear somebody call your name at night, it might be a Dwen, so you learn very quickly when you're a kid not to answer, um, because there are these you know, seemingly real malevolent spirits who are out to get you, and they seem like this living, breathing thing, but there were no jumbies in books, and I realized very quickly, of course, that they were not real, you know, they were, they're very much like fairies in Grimm's fairy tales. And whereas I had like huge 
you know, grim fairy tale books. I didn't have any books about jumpies. So I really wanted to have a book about jumpies when I was a little kid. And, you know, I kept looking around and I never found one anywhere. And when I was in college, I came across this book called Best Love Folk Tales of the World. And they had a Caribbean section. And I very eagerly went to the Caribbean section to look it up and see if they had any stories about jumpies. And there were none. So I decided, well, I'm just going to have to do this thing myself. And so that's basically how it started is because I really wanted a story. And also because I wanted to share this folklore with my children who really didn't know it. And I just started writing and it took forever to to figure it out because I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And so it took a long time to even figure out the story. Wow. Yeah. So you, you were really doing it to fill sort of an unmet need. In a for sense, myself, For yourself, yes. I mean, yeah. which is, I think, a great place to start in terms of writing something. It kind of is the place I start with everything. I, it is extremely <laughs> yeah. selfish. My, <laughs> my writing goals are very selfish. I'm really thinking about myself and nobody else when I well, start Well, that can writing. be the best motivation sometimes. Maybe. Right? So, you know, okay, so you said it was really challenging, you know, doing, doing the book. So what, yes. what was the process like? How, how did you actually move from, okay, now I'm going to write this book to the book being the, at least a, a draft of the book being done? Well, I'll tell you, the entire process from the time I started working on this story to the day that it got sold was a little over nine years. Wow. That is, yes, it was a long time. Um, I'm a slow writer. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But basically what happened was my first novel, Angel's Grace, came out in 2005. And just before it came out, my editor at the time, uh, Paula Weissman at Simon & Schuster, sent me some cover copy to look over and approve. And in the cover copy, it said that uh, Tracy is working on another novel. And I had no idea I was supposed to be working on another novel. I just, I just written and sold one. Uh, so I thought, ooh, I guess I need to be working on something. And so I had wanted to have this story. And so I started at that point. I think it might have been the same day, too, because I felt, you know, I'm a Catholic school girl. So you, you feel like a lot of pressure to, yeah. like, do the right thing. Yeah. You know, and if, if, you know, if Sister Maria says you've got to be doing something, you get on it, like, toot sweet. Stat. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, so I started trying to write this story about this girl, and her name was not Corinne at first at all. I think it was Giselle or something like that. I, I don't recall. And um, I could not figure out, A, what kind of story it was going to be or really what I wanted to get out of the story. And, and I think that's why it took such a long time because a lot of it was just me trying to figure out what did I want to say? And then how did I want to say it? So it was not for many years that I figured it out. And of course, I wasn't working on it constantly. I would just put it away. And sometimes I'd put it away for a year or two years at a time. And then I'd come back to it and say, okay, where is this? Have I figured this out yet? And so it was really in just the last maybe three years or so that I had it figured out, that I knew what I wanted to say and how the story uh, how I wanted to have the story unfold, I realized that I wanted it to be a fairy tale, really. And once I had that in mind, then everything started to uh, fall into place much better. Oh, that sounds 
Wow, that's quite a tale in and of itself. I know. Going through that whole process to get to the, the finished product. So that's that's great because I think it really, that's really a story of determination and grit, I think, to be able to stick with something for that long and sort of not give up on it. Right. And I think, too, it was because, you know, the three-year-old me really wanted this story that I did not give up on it. Yeah. Um, because there were, I, I wrote other things in between. I was doing other things in between. Um, I was having children in, in between. Um, there, you know, there were a lot of things going on. So, and, and there were a lot of times and I thought, you know, I can't figure this out. Maybe I should stop. And I would move on to other things, but it kept calling to me in a way, and I would always go back to it and pull out the files or pull out the notes or, or whatever it was and start looking at it again. And almost every time that I restarted it, I would restart from scratch. I wouldn't really, I would look at the notes, but I wouldn't start with what I had previously. I would just sort of start all over uh, from the beginning because I, you know, I really was just trying to figure out what it was. I didn't know what it was at all. So it, it did take a while, yeah. Yeah. So then maybe you could tell me a little bit about a time that something really surprised that come from. That actually happens really often. Uh, I think a lot of the time when I work, I'm kind of in a, it feels almost trance-like. Um, so that when I'm sort of in the zone, I don't really see my surroundings. It's, it's like if I look away from the computer, or I look away from the, or look up from the notebook, it takes me like a couple of seconds to figure out where I am. And that happens very often when I work. So there are a lot of times when I go back and I read, reread um, some past portion, and I literally have no idea where the, the turn of phrase came from, or, or you know, even you know, just a particular wording or, um, or an element comes in. I. I I'm a complete loss, and I'm I'm usually like pleasantly surprised. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know I had that in me, really. But I think the thing um, that most surprised me about this particular book, when I started working on it, at some point I got this idea that I really wanted to have. Um, to, I wanted to say something about darkness and about darkness not being what we think of darkness as that it's hmm. just you know it's just a word that we use and maybe we are misappropriating that word um, but the fact that it's not so much darkness that we are afraid of but shadowiness and so i started putting a lot of that into the book where there are a lot of shadows in the book and i use the word uh, and i use words like shadowy or or things like that rather than using the word dark because i didn't want to use the word dark as a negative in the sense that darkness is sort of like the absence of light whereas shadows are some sort of combination of the two in a, in a weird way where we can't right ex out. exactly where you can't you cannot have the shadow without the light you know it really is um you know like two sides of the same thing mm -hmm. um that there is more duplicity in it that it is not literally it is literally not black and white yeah and so that's the kind of thing that i wanted to get to and i didn't even know that that was a thing that i wanted to say yeah until I started writing it and I started noticing that I was using you know sort of shadowy words rather than you know using the word dark and using the word dark to describe the um, the bad guy mm -hmm. you know I, I would never do that because to me she didn't seem 
like that much of a bad she I mean she definitely was the bad guy as far as Corinne was concerned but for me in you know the grand scheme of things in this jumbie world that I created she's not that bad of a person or and who is creature. she just just Severine is Severine is the is the is the baddie right in the jumbies um she's the one who follows Corinne out and she wants to take over the island and what you come to find out is that uh you know she sort of ruled the island previously yeah. and kind of got pushed off to the side and she's a native people story exactly and she wants to sort of get back her power get back you know what she what she had what was hers that she yeah. lost that yeah, was taken from her that was taken even. from her right and so um you know and, and that too like i didn't realize that that was the story i was telling at all until i started looking at her and trying to think about what she wanted and suddenly she became so much more important uh, to the story than just sort of a sort of cookie cutter kind of bad guy. Yeah, yeah. So what about, what about the writing process? Does everyone think they know? But really, it's, it's, that's actually not the case. Do you have any, anything like that? Um, you know, I have to say, like, my writing process for every single book has been completely different. Uh, I think the thing that people believe is that you have to sit down and write every single day. I don't believe that. I don't think mm. that that's true. I think that there are days when you sit and you think through things, um, or days when you sit and you just observe and things kind of... Um, get absorbed into you, into yourself, into your subconscious. And I think you have to allow for, for that. You cannot be sitting in front of a computer screen every single day trying to output or, you know, writing into a notebook trying to output. You have to allow things in. And so there are a lot of people who are just like, you have to write every day. You must sit down. You must, you know, make a schedule. You must, you know, write for two hours and whatever you do in those two hours. I definitely don't believe that. Um, I, I, you know, if, I feel like if that is a thing that works for you, then feel free to do that. Um, but I don't believe that that is something that must be done. I, I think you just kind of work as you, as, as it works for you. And for me, having a, a particular schedule and particular time to write is not a thing that works for me. Yeah, I really like what you said about having time to take things in as well as time to, to write things. Right. I used to teach and perform improv, and, and that was one of the big things we talked about, was for some people it's really easy to get so addicted and excited about just performing improv and doing improv that you forget that in order to su be successful at improv, you have to have life experiences you can draw from and then create on the stage. Right. So you actually, it's like some, I literally would, would tell some of my students, like you need to just take a step back and go do something else. Like go wander around a museum for a day or something like go have some experiences, take some stuff in, and then you can bring that back to your art. Right. It's so. true. It's very true. But even just having a break, even just, you know, taking, a break to do something else that has nothing to do particularly with the art form that you're doing to just give your mind another type of perspective. I, I know a lot of authors who do other creative things like paint, even if they, you know, not great painters or, or anything, but, you know, just do it or um, do knitting or crochet or 
um, scrapbook, you know, whatever it is, um, who do just other, have other creative outlets that have nothing to do with writing, just to sort of give your mind like a little vacation because, yeah. you know, even just thinking about a story or allowing things to come in and you're like, oh, that's a good idea for the story. You're thinking about it all the time and it's, and it's work. You yeah. know, you're actually doing work and you can sort of just be mindless sometimes if you're, uh, like I knit. So you know, I can sit there and just knit and be mindless and not think about anything but what is my next stitch. And it's great because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not working at all. It's yeah. like total relaxation. Well, especially, yeah, I think once that you've started to take one piece, one type of art that you that you really love, but you've turned it into work to some degree, you know, where, you, you know, if you're writing for a living and it's important that you write because you have deadlines to meet and you have to get books sold, then it can take some of the fun that just creating and, and being an artistic person allows you. So I think that's another great reason why you would want to have a lot of other artistic hobbies you have just to quench that sort of thirst. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's. I think it's super important to be able to do other things. And it didn't have to be that. I, I know um, one author who... Uh, she goes hiking all the time. You know, she just, you know, she loves to go hiking and it's something that clears her head and it's great. Cool. So I want to get into the book itself right now because sure. it was quite a book. <laughs> a lot happens, uh, especially at the end. But uh, I want to talk about the beginning. So okay. I was really hooked on the book like right away. I thought the first chapter was very exciting and dramatic and things were happening and you know, you really, you ended it on a dramatic note. And so I just, I kind of wanted to talk about that. I think it really sets the stage in, in a good way. It tells us about everything else. Well, um, in my, with my first novel, uh, Angel's Grace, the first chapter is sort of this kind of explanatory chapter. And then mm -hmm. chapter two is when everything starts happening. And I remember my editor at the time saying that to me, that she was reading it in a marketing meeting or whatever and people were sort of like picking lint out of their belly buttons while she was reading chapter one and then when she got to chapter two that's when everybody sort of perked up and were like really interested and they're like oh okay yeah and so I thought okay so next novel start on chapter two right hook them quickly <laughs> and all, exactly and all subsequent chapters start on chapter two so I was very cognizant of the fact that I wanted it to start uh, kind of fast and punchy and have a lot of stuff in it so that people would be interested very quickly. Um, and so that's why I decided to start with her running. And her name, I told you that, you know, she had like different names as I was starting to create it. Um, I decided to name her Corinne because uh, Correr is um, to run. To in, run. In, right. So, yeah. And so that's why I changed her name because it starts, oh. you know, Corinne. And then she's running immediately. Interesting. It seems uh, like she's running a lot, actually, throughout the lot. course of the exactly. book. Exactly. Yes, there's a lot of running throughout the course of the book. And so I, I thought it really fit um, perfectly. Uh, so I changed it for that reason. And then I, I wanted to get to the jumbie immediately. And so I have the jumbie come out. Kids, kids are very different than adults, obviously. And, you know, children's literature really can play to that sometimes and be very child focused. Um, but I think that the best sort of kids literature has something for parents as well, you know, because especially if parents are reading stuff throughout the book. And so I was wondering how you, you sort of found that balance and if, if you were even trying to find for anyone. The thing uh, that I think works in kids' books is that 
any well-written kids book will appeal to adults. I think, you know, when you don't write down to a child, when you say the thing that you want to say, because I, I really had this thing that I wanted to say about, you know, um, you know, sh the shadowiness of, of, of a situation where, you know, everything is not a stark good or bad. Um, I think when you have something that's like that and you're sort of telling the truth about, you know, your observations about life or whatever it is, it will have universal appeal regardless of age. And I think that's a thing that a lot of really great children's books do, even all the way down to picture books, which are, good Lord, those are hard um, to, to, to create. They're, they're very hard, they're very deceptively simple. Um, you know, but they speak to this universal idea of whatever it is that the author is trying to say. And then at that point, you don't have to worry so much about the adult. You know, you just concentrate on what is the message that you are trying to convey and you make sure that it is age appropriate. I was thinking about the age of the audience. I, I think I, I do tend to write for sort of a, a third, fourth, fifth grade kid. I think that's sort of my zone. And once I think about that, that's you know, the rest of it just kind of falls into place. I think the vocabulary that I use is because I am a former teacher, and so I do love using sort of juicy words. That's what I used to call it when I was yeah. in the classroom, uh, using like really beautiful language because even if kids don't know that language, they will get some sense of what it means from the context. Yeah. Or they'll look it up and they'll find out about and it. They'll and learn. they'll like learn juicy words yeah. in a sort of sneaky way without yeah. me having to like make a lesson plan for right. it. To get them hooked on the story and then they'll want to know because exactly. they want to know what's, what's exactly. going on. So, um, so I did use uh, vocabulary that I thought might be a little bit more advanced than the readership that I was going for, but I figured that it worked. You know, if it worked in context, it would work for the story and, you know, kids would understand. Or even if they didn't look it up, you know, they might see it someplace else. And it, once you see it a couple of times, you start to figure out, yeah. you know, sort of what it means. Yeah. So, yes, it was a little bit the teacher in me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, not dumbing it down right. is, is important. Yes. You know. Yeah, it's so, so important. And, you know, uh, most of the books that I read now that I just absolutely adore, the books that I read with my kids... Um, they're like that where, you know, it's, it really is a kind of universal truth and it doesn't, you know, it, it speaks to me as an adult. It speaks to the kids as, as little guys and, and we all really enjoy it. You know, I would, I would say a lot of sort of scary books or books with monsters in them, um, they really kind of immediately paint a stark picture of, you know, our hero and then the monsters over there and the monsters are very different. Um, and there's, there's the other and there, and that's it. And, you know, sometimes they're, they're, they come together in some ways, but, but I think that you do a really good job of sort of humanizing the Jumbies very quickly. You know, you, you really make it clear that these aren't just animals running around that, or don't have conscious thought, you know, right. they are clearly thinking intelligent beings. And so it forces the reader to consider them as such. And I think that's, that's really important. And, and I think you even go as far. I remember, um, there was a frog trapped that also had right. some feelings as well yes. about what was going on. <laughs> so 
you obviously did this on, on purpose. And so I was just curious why, why you decided to go that direction. Well, early in the writing of it, um, I was really stuck. And I showed it to a friend of mine. And he's an editor, and he does a lot of freelance work. And uh, so he saw the first, I don't know, 40, 30 or 40 pages of it. And of course, Severine shows up very early. And he said that, you know, I don't understand what her motivation is mm-hmm. for coming after Corinne. And I had to really think about that. You know, I had to really think about what Severine wanted and why she wanted it. And I very quickly discovered that she had this whole other story that she was in a lot of ways suffering herself, that she had these desires, that she had these betrayals that happened to her. And of course, none of that um, comes out on the page in a way that, like, I don't spell out exactly what it is, but you can sort of feel it in the way that she reacts to things. the way that she reacts to Corinne's father, Pierre, the way that she, the, the kinds of things that she says to Corinne, you can infer that there is a whole other story there. There is far more to her than her present actions, that she has a history, that her history is interesting, that her history has now led her to this place. And that became really important to me to make sure that um, she was not you know, just sort of uh, a bad guy for the sake of being a bad guy, that, you know, there was real motivation there. Um, and the frog, <laughs> the frog, the frog was so funny. Um, you know, a lot of fairy tales have frogs, frogs. in them. So I yeah. thought I would, I'd have to get a frog in here. <laughs> and I just really enjoyed having the frog sort of have revenge, <laughs> you know, have yeah. a, a little froggy revenge at the end. Yeah, you know, I totally just thought did. it was a lot of fun. Not, we don't want to spoil that. No. You have to read the book to find out what the what happened. You know, Severine, the, the big bad Jumbi, took human form, you know, and was this sort of beautiful woman that everyone was just amazed at. And she used this to, to seduce Pierre. And she, she really, it, it seemed like she wanted to get a family back and that was really important to her and talk about motivations, yeah. you know, like that was yeah. a core motivation to her was like getting back a family. You know, why I was just thinking about it, you know, why is that, why is family so important um, generally? And why, why is it so important for her? Right. You know? um, yeah. I mean, I could have made it that she just wanted power and, and control, which she also did. But, um, you know, I think the thing that kids can very much relate to is having a family and knowing how much you love that family and knowing that even when you're mad at mom or dad or some sibling for whatever infraction that you know things come around eventually and you're a family again and everything's nice and I think the threat of having your family taken away from you is something that kids could understand in a real visceral way. So it was important for the story and to get kids to be really invested in what was happening, um, to have Severine have that desire as well. It, f- it mm-hmm. felt much deeper to me than the desire for her to just have power. Like, you know, that's not a concept that feels 
that you feel very deeply or that a parent would feel very deeply or a child would feel very deeply, especially if you're sitting next to your mom or your dad and you're reading this book together, you can like really feel the, the sort of rift between, you know, what would happen if one of you suddenly was ripped away from the other one. Yeah. You know, it was extremely purposeful manipulation. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. That's the whole point. That's what, that's what this is all about. Uh, well, I think it's very well done. Thank you. Um, because, yeah, I was, oof. I was nervous. I was like, oh, no. Because it's, it's, it's not even that the family is taken away from Corinne. It's that, the, like, her, her dad has turned into, like, a zombie servant right. of, of Severine, which is, which is like, a, like, even worse. You know, it's not just, like, losing your, your dad, but losing your dad to, like, a mind-controlled you know, situation where right. it becomes something else, becomes something bad. Yeah. And that's, that is, that just seems like the worst of all possible worlds. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> not that I thought about that, <laughs> but, uh, when, so when Severine was cooking for Pierre though, and this is when she was trying to, to get him to, I guess that was when whatever he ate was like going to turn yes. his mind into mush. Right. Yeah. So Corinne, Corinne sort of knew or seemingly knew that there was something wrong, and she really had like an innate sense of danger. Like the food didn't smell right. I think is right, what yes. he wrote, and so she immediately just like she she literally like knocked it off the stove or something like that. She just literally got yeah, rid she, of it. Yeah, she picked it up and she like throws it out. Yeah, she's like, nope, you're, you're done. And she she immediately starts cooking her own yes. food, and it's sort of like a battle cooking wise. Right. And, uh, but but what I thought was really interesting about that was that she. She didn't think about it too much. She really didn't, the food didn't smell right. She instinctively f- felt like the situation was wrong and off and she acted on it immediately. And so I was just, I wanted to know, you know, how important are our instincts versus taking the time to rationally think through a situation and how did Corinne know that this was the time to trust her instincts? Oh, that's such a good question. That is something I struggle with a lot like trying to know that my instincts are correct and trusting my instincts, it's something that I really do struggle with because I I do tend to overthink things sometimes. But I have found that there are times when, you know, sometimes when I just react, it really works to my favor. There's something about sometimes just allowing yourself to react that works really well, even if it's just like a reflex action or, um, because I, I have little kids, well actually they're not that little anymore, but, um, <laughs> but in their lives as they've been growing up, sometimes you just have a reflex action to something that they're doing that keeps them out of danger, that you're, you, you, know, you don't think about it until afterwards, you're like, oh my God, if I hadn't done X, good Lord, you know, what could have happened? And, um, so I, I wanted to have, because she does, Corinne does think through some of the things. Sometimes, you know, there's this moment where the three of them sit down to dinner. Um, you know, it's raining out and Severine and Pierre asks Severine to stay and then they sit and they eat. And so she's thinking then about how that relationship could be, you know, now that her mother's gone and, you know, if there could be somebody else in her father's life. And she's really thinking through it and struggling with these ideas um, but in that moment, yes, she just reacts. Um, and it's a good thing she does, of course, because we later learn that it could have been, you know, very bad for all of them 
if they had eaten it, but she didn't, you know, she didn't know that, right? She just sort of acted on instinct. And it, I, it really is just something that I guess I, I'm trying to work through and trying to figure out, you know, and I don't even know if you can. I think, you know, yeah. sometimes you just kind of have to let go and just, you know, see what happens. Um, you know, there was something that happened the other day in the car where, you know, if I had made a slightly different decision, we would have been in an accident. I was in the car with the children. And it was one of those things where it just sort of reacted on instinct and was able to maneuver out of something that I didn't, I didn't even know that I could move a car in that way. You know, yeah. like I didn't even know I had that in me. You know, I'm like such a very sort of slow, cautious driver and it required me to like swerve, speed up in, without thinking about it. And I just sort of did it and got yeah. out of uh, something. And well, I'm glad you're okay. I know, but it was just, um, it, it was not going to be like that bad, but we, we would have been in an accident. Sure. Um, and you, there are just moments where you just kind of react and you, you, there's no time to, to really think about it. You just sort of yeah. go that route. And, and I wanted her to have a moment where she just reacted, where she didn't let all the thinking that she had been doing bog her down and, and worry her as it had been worrying her. She's just like, nope, this is no good. Moving now on. is the time for action. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there, so she has a, um, the friends, I think there's, she has these two boys right. who are, Buki and Malik, Buki and Malik, who are, sort of, they don't have anywhere to stay, they don't have a family, so right. they are just kind of wandering. And then she has another friend, um, Drew. Drew, who's yes. the little girl. So there's the four of them, and there's really interesting debate, but it's a really small part of the book. It really, it really it did not, it didn't play into the broader, broader whole, but they briefly debated sort of the value of monogamy. <laughs> which I thought was like a very interesting and adult conversation to like think through, you know, they, I mean, they, they use the phrase pairing up, yes, I think, in right. the book and they, yes. but they were briefly actually like talking about like whether it was a good idea or not. Right. You know, and I thought that was so interesting again, just from a perspective of, you know, if kids are reading this book, you know, get them, you know, questioning their world, <laughs> right. you know, already, which is, which, uh, so I was just curious how, how that kind of got in there and how you think that, that affected the book, if, if at all. I honestly, until I saw that question uh, that you, when you sent me the, the questions ahead of time, I had never even thought about this. Oh, like really? it was just something that Buki said where he was like he Buki is kind of like a feral cat. Like he doesn't yeah. understand the concept of family at all. You know, he has his brother and that is all he cares about. Um, he does not understand this whole idea of living in a house and bathing every day, <laughs> and mothers kissing you, and father, like, he just, like, doesn't get it at all, um, and he, because he and his brother are kind of these feral children, you know, they they have the opportunity to see, and observe, and, and learn about the world, because th that's, they're really, their only opportunity to learn about the world is by observation, um, because they don't have anybody who's instructing them at all. And so Buki really does have these sort of great insights about people um, and good instincts about people when he sees them. And, um, you know, so his, I think his whole thing was just, you know, why are you allowing this woman to, like, why do you even need this woman? Like, he doesn't understand yeah. it. Like, you can, you can get along fine. You can, like, literally live in the caves with yeah. us. And never bathe. Right. He's like, listen, great. we're doing fine here. Exactly. Yeah, he's like, I don't, he's, why is this even a concern? Exactly. You know, he, yeah. he just doesn't get it at all. Yeah. Um, so it was, 
it was just meant to be like a, sort of a bookieism that it's just like this sort of funny observation that he yeah. makes. And I did not think about it um, at all. It was just sort of like, you know, um, yeah. you know, I have a non-conventional family, you know, so can you. It'll be fine. Yeah. And that's, Which is, that's but again, his stance. Yeah, I think that's a great message i mean i to me i'm i'm the sort of person that like always questions everything and tries to get everyone else to question everything yeah my friends my friends will agree i think <laughs> so i'm always trying to question you know society's notions of what should be and and all that so i think that's great that, right he's that definitely that there. person who yeah. like is like well you know what do we need you know what do we need ads for what do we need houses for like what do you you know yeah. there's this food on the street yeah i could just on. I mean, somebody has like literally money hanging out their pocket. I could just have that. Yeah. <laughs> and then he doesn't think easy. anything of it, yeah. you know. Thanks so much for listening to part one of my two-part discussion with Tracy Batiste about her novel, The Jumbies. Be sure and download the second part of this great talk.